All right, well, let's go ahead and get started. So thank you guys so much for coming out tonight. Uh, I do want to start with just a couple announcements, and then we will uh, jump into our devotion this evening, get back into the book of Revelation again. And so uh, a couple things just to make sure you're aware of. Um, obviously, this coming Saturday is our uh, family game night. So that's, uh, we get together at four o'clock here at the church. Uh, there'll be a bounce house set up for the kids actually in this room back over here in this corner. And then we'll have a bunch of tables and stuff set up in the fellowship hall. Um, honestly, it's just a really relaxed night. Like everyone brings their own favorite board games, card games, whatever, uh, you like to play as a family, bring that out. We'll have a table set up with some other games. And then you just kind of float around and, and play games with different people, whatever they're playing that you want to get into. And, um, it's always a great night. Um, food is provided as well. And so we're going to have some uh, authentic Mexican food there that evening. So um, it's going to be great. It's going to be an awesome night. Now, if the weather, because I know a lot of you guys have been watching the weather and stuff, um, there is obviously a chance of, of quite a bit of snow, possibly Friday into Friday night into Saturday morning. And it's Michigan, so it's everywhere between one inch to like a billion inches. I don't know, whatever. So, so that being said, um, we're going to try to make the announcements um, late enough that we don't call it too early and then the snow doesn't come and then we're, we could have met, but also not so late that it's like 3.30, okay? So we will try our very best to put it out. If we're canceling the event, we aren't really canceling it. We're actually just going to move it. One week is our plan. Uh, we'll bump it to the next Saturday, the 20th. Okay, that's our plan um, because there's nothing going on and so hopefully that would work for people and stuff. So, um, but my hope is by like Friday nights, Friday evening, we'll, we'll see what's on the ground. We'll have a better idea of what's coming, what's already been, you know, what already has fallen. So we'll try to let everyone know Friday night. If not Friday night, the latest it would be is Saturday morning. And we're going to notify through Facebook and through the app. Okay, so if you don't have the app, that's North Goodland, BC in your app store. And if you aren't on Facebook watching us on, or following us on Facebook, obviously you can do that. Just look for North Goodland and you'll find us. And so those are the two ways we're going to try to announce that we're changing it. So if you've invited someone or tagged somebody on Facebook or you know someone that's coming that's not a part of our church family that may not have access to the app and stuff, um, if we do cancel, please let them know. Please pass the word along. But we'll try to put something out, like I said, Friday night. Saturday morning, okay? And it's really just going to depend on what we believe uh, the roads are going to be like, because obviously that may affect the availability of people to come. We would normally do whatever and just have whoever here, but for this event, we'd like to try to make it where as many people can come as possible. Um, and so if we have to do that, we will, all right? So any questions about family game night? Yes? Oh, a comment works too. We'll take that. Any, any takers? Any takers? Lynn, you can beat me at any game you want if you pray that, because I don't want any snow. And once Christmas is over. So, yeah, so hopefully we'll be good. And if it does get a lot of snow, we'll try to get it cleared and everything ready for you guys, all right? So that's going on Saturday. Um, also, just a reminder that this Sunday is the last Sunday to get in nominations for our officer nominations. Um, all of that's due Sunday. That's at the Welcome Sunday. if you have any questions on that. Um, also want to let you know we have snack night this coming Sunday evening. So this is for the student ministry uh, right after service till nine o'clock. The cost is $3 and they just bring their own drink. Um, $3 goes towards their food. And then, like I said, they just kind of hang out here at the church until nine o'clock. Um, also want to let you know that we have our uh, Hallelujah Quilters craft retreat. Um, and we're letting you know about this early. That comes up in the beginning of February, February 9th. 
and 10th. There's going to be more information in the bulletin on Sunday about that. That's not just for quilters. That's for anyone that likes to get together, do some crafts and things. It's a Friday and a Saturday, kind of a retreat format. Uh, We also have Baptism Sunday coming up on the 21st. So if you are here and have never followed the Lord and Believers Baptism and like to do that, we invite you to be a part of that. Um, again, it's, uh, we have two that are right now going to be baptized, so we're praising the Lord for that. We're excited for them. Um, also, Forever Young has their potluck on the 21st. That's right after service. And so, again, bring a dish to pass. That's for our 50-plus crowd. And then also uh, tithing envelopes. If you need tithing envelopes, if you use those through the year, uh, you can actually sign up at the Welcome Center to get those. Um, Again, whether you give through envelopes in the traditional way of just collecting it on Sunday mornings, or if you give online, we greatly appreciate your support and generosity. Um, Also, we have communion coming up this Sunday, so don't miss out on that. And then Nerf Nights is going on the 24th. And again, we're really praying for good weather that night. Um, as of now, uh, we have two kids in the, the Word of Life group that are inviting their entire classes from school. So we're super excited about that. Um, so I don't know, pray for Sandra, pray for the leaders, because we have a lot of kids as it is. And if like a third of them and a half of that, it's going to be a lot of kids, So, which is awesome. Uh, we would love to have as many kids as we can fit in this building show up on Wednesday night, the 24th. And so also pray for families that come with them, parents, grandparents, whoever might be dropping them off. Um, And if they're not connected to a church, we would love that they would become a part of the Word of Life ministry and be able to be encouraged and supported in the ministry that way. So a lot of great things going on, a lot of awesome stuff upcoming. So be a part of it where you can. Um, That's all the events, announcements that I have. I I believe I've got everything. Any questions about any upcoming events, activities, anything like that? No? No? All right, well, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll jump into our devotion. Father, we thank you for this evening. Lord, you are so good to us, and we could never uh, use enough words to express our thankfulness for your goodness, for your grace, for your mercy, for your love, and most of all, Lord, for your gospel. And so we thank you for your redemption. We thank you that in Christ and in Christ alone, we can have eternal life, forgiveness of sins, that we can stand victorious, that when we leave this world, we know we will be with you because of what you've done for us. Father, we thank you that you conquered death and the grave. And so because you conquered death, we too one day will stand victorious over death and hell and the grave. There is no power in death. There's no sting. Uh, Yes, Lord, we grieve, of course, when we lose a loved one. But in Christ, Lord, uh, we grieve differently than those that have no hope. We grieve as as those that know Uh, that there is an eternal life that awaits those who are in Christ. There is a joy and a rest in the Lord that we will enjoy in your heaven forever. And so we thank you, Lord, for that guarantee. We thank you for that peace that you give to us. Father, we pray that you would be with us tonight, Lord, as we dive into your word. Pray that you'd open our understanding, give us wisdom and guidance as we desire to just know in a deeper sense this word, that we might apply it to our lives to exalt Christ, to be conformed to the image of Christ, to lead others to Christ, and to glorify you in the things that we say and do. And Father, right now, uh, we take just a moment, we lift up Andy Vaughn and your guidance to the family as decisions are being made and all those things. We pray for comfort for her mom. And we pray, Father, that you would just watch over her, Lord. I know she's had a lot of issues getting down there and, and all of that stuff. And so we just pray that you'd be with all the details in that. And, and Lord, again, may you be glorified in all of this and just comfort during this difficult time. And we thank you, Father, for 
just, again, that common salvation that we have in Christ, that, that knowledge that we know that you are over all these things. And so we give you all these things. We entrust them into your hand that you might be glorified. And Father, again, thank you for tonight. Thank you for our student ministry. Bless and guide them, Lord, as they receive the word tonight. Lord, it's so difficult to be a teenager in our culture today. I can't even imagine some of the things these kids go through every single day and the temptations that are out there. But we know that, that you can give them victory. And so we pray you'd strengthen them in you, strengthen them in your word, and guide them to a closer walk with you. Father, for our Olympians and Gopher Buddies, just minister to those young minds, Lord, and, and those young hearts. Just grow them up into the young men and women that they're called to be in Christ. And thank you for our volunteers and our leaders and all those who just nurture and care for those children. And uh, Father, not just here, but also in junior church on Sundays and, and so many other ways that people minister to this generation coming up right now, Lord, desperately needed. And so thank you for them. And Father, again, we praise you for tonight. Thank you for all this. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, tonight, I do have a handout for you guys. So I'm going to need a couple volunteers. So somebody maybe hand out clipboards. I got handouts and I got pens. So you're the first. You get to pick what you want to hand out. Okay, there you go. Awesome. We got some pens and some clipboards. There you go, sir. Oh, yeah. Got some more here. All right. If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10. That's where we're going to start tonight. Pens, clipboards. We should have enough handouts, but if any married couples would like to share a handout, William doesn't need one. Yeah, you, well. Sorry, if any married couples and their spouses with them, they can share. <laughs> That's, yes, because, I mean, just start preaching at her as soon as you walk in the door. This is what we talked about tonight. <laughs> Easy. Easy. This is going to get intense really fast. All right. Everyone got what they need? Everyone good? Those handing things out, make sure you grab what you need. Make sure you got your handouts and stuff. Thank you, ma'am. Awesome. Everyone good? What's that? We're not good. We're wretched. Depraved. Okay. Um, so, Revelation chapter 10 um, is this, is this too loud? Am I too loud to you guys? No? Okay. All right. It's kind of weird up here. Yeah, there. Mm -hmm. boom Okay. All right. Um, so tonight, uh, I had mentioned last week, we actually covered, um, quite a bit of scripture in Revelation. We went from, um, chapter eight into chapter 11, and we covered a handful of things that were going on there. As we said early on, uh, we are going to summarize some of these portions, especially some of the judgments. Um, we're not going to read through every single line. Um, last week, we gave you guys kind of a handout that talked about those different trumpet judgments. And I mentioned that in between those, some of those trumpet judgments, we have some other things happening, some kind of interludes. And so we skipped over chapter 10 kind of entirely, on purpose, uh, because what I want to do tonight is I want to kind of walk through this chapter verse by verse, kind of looking at what's happening here. Uh, it's only 12, I'm sorry, 11 verses, so it's a short chapter, but I absolutely love what we see here in Revelation 10. And we're going to talk about at the end why this even really is even more impactful for John and I believe for us as believers today. So, 
Um, it says there is practically, and we are continuing our series on the book of Revelation. Our goal is to see the book of the book rather as practically encouraging and Christ exalting. So remember, every week, I know we mentioned this over and over again, the overall theme of this book, we have to keep it in the forefront of our minds, especially when we get into all the judgment stuff. And, and we tend to do this, I think, as New Testament Christians. We do this when we read the minor prophets and all that. It's a, I mean, every minor prophet's judgment, 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 judgment. And it's important to read those things because we realize something when we read about the judgment of God and the wrath of God. We realize that God is holy and God is just and sin will be held accountable. Amen? Yeah, that's a good thing to know of our God. Why does God got to give us all this talk about judgment and condemnation and wrath? Because he's holy. And when we recognize not just that he loves, which he does, not just that he's gracious, but remember, what's the only attribute of God that's repeated three times? It's the holiness of God. Right? He's holy, holy, holy. Doesn't say he's gracious, gracious, gracious. Is he gracious? Of course he is. Praise God that he's gracious because you and I are able to be here in his presence because of his grace. If it wasn't for his grace, none of us would be in his presence. We'd all be consumed. But it doesn't say he's gracious, 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 merciful, 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 loving, 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 although that's the one that our culture today, even our church culture wants to push that more than anything else. It's the holiness of God. And I think the more we study the holiness of God, the greater the love of God will appear. Does that make sense? Because think about it. He loves you even as a sinner that he had to save by sending Christ to die on the cross for you to satisfy his holiness. Like that's how great his love is, is that he's that holy and yet still made a way for us. Sinners, right? Born, separated from him, rebellious in nature. And so again, the more we know the holiness of God, man, the grace of God becomes greater. The love of God becomes greater. The relationship you have with Christ becomes even fuller, right? Because you realize this God that I worship is worthy of all praise, right? Which we've seen all throughout the book of Revelation. So as we study all this stuff and look at all this stuff and, and there's all kinds of opinions about the rapture and the judgments and when this happens and when that happens, we can get so lost in all that that we forget the core reason we're reading this book and studying it. It's to exalt Christ and to be encouraged as followers of Christ. And again, I find it so ridiculous that so many believers lose that because they start arguing the finer points of this judgment or pre-trib or post-trib or mid-trib or whatever they might want to argue. And again, you can have your opinion on it. I believe there are scriptural things that we can point to and say, we believe this and we believe this. We know what is church history held to for since the beginning of these things will happen. The return of Christ, the new heaven and new earth. So we know that. We know, right, that he's coming again. We know he's going to establish his kingdom and we know that we'll be with him forever. And there's going to be a new heaven and new earth. The other parts of that, we can have opinions, we can have discussions, we can have views, but we can't get so entangled in those minor, I say minor, but I've met people, maybe you've met them too, that study prophecy. And as you talk to them, it seems like they're more about exalting their intelligence than they are about exalting Christ. And that's what I've seen. It's more like they want to impress you with all the different theological terms they can throw around and the different timelines they can share with you. And it's by the end of it, you're not thinking I'm exalting Christ. You're like, wow, this guy's awesome. He knows a lot of his stuff. And we've got to be careful there. Again, this is about exalting Christ and us being encouraged. So it says there in your notes, we are focusing on chapter 10, an amazing break in the flow of the judgments that are being revealed. So this is happening 
uh, in between the sixth and seventh trumpets. So letter A in your notes. Here we see a new movement in Revelation, a new movement. So Revelation 10, 1 through 3. If I can get a volunteer that would like to read that, we're going to be doing some readings tonight. So I know you're so, so anxious to read. You're so excited to read. So just be ready to throw that hand up like Margie. She was ready. She, I'm ready to go. Okay. I could have said 1 through 12, 11, and she'd have been like, let's do it. Let's go. So uh, verses, one, yeah. <laughs> verses 1 through 3 of chapter 10, ma'am. All right. Thank you, ma'am. So here we see a break, right? This is not one of the trumpet judgments. And it says in your notes, so number one, uh, this chapter is brief introducing an interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet judgments. And so again, kind of a break in the narrative. Uh, number two, based on this passage, some interpreters believe the mighty angel identified here in 10, chapter 10, verse one is Jesus Christ. Others suggest the mighty angel is the archangel Michael. So there's kind of two views on this. Now, I'm going to give you kind of the background here. I think you got like two little sections that say like note, couple lines, note, couple lines. I'm going to kind of give you why people think it's Jesus and why people think it's just an angel. These are not dogmatic issues that, again, going to cause division. Uh, This is more information for you to just know what people have kind of Uh, come to you from this passage, how it's been interpreted. So if you're reading or studying this on your own and you come across a commentary, um, I've got a few commentaries on my shelf. A couple very clearly tell you, oh, that's Jesus. Others say, well, no, it's, it's most likely just an angel. All of these commentaries are written by godly men, right, who love the Lord, walk with the Lord, know scripture. So there's theologians on both sides of this kind of uh, debate. Again, it's not worthy of getting into a fight over, but it is something that I want to lay before you because, again, you may come across it in your studies. So, and you can jot down whatever you'd like on those couple note lines, okay? Because I'm going to go a little quick, and if you miss something, just let me know. I'll give you uh, my notes even. So this mighty angel is described with a face that shines like the what? Okay, so he's got a face that shines like the sun. Uh, he is clothed with a cloud. So what is that kind of make you think of clothed with a cloud. Okay. Could, could be referring to in the presence of God or has the presence of God. Could mean that it almost looks like he's kind of just floating there, right? Kind of this like cloud pillowy kind of a look. Okay. Then it says his feet are like pillars of fire. So pillars of fire. Uh, there are obvious similarities to the description of Jesus in Revelation 1. Right? There's some similarities here. However, though, there are those that point out this may merely be John's way of describing this angel's power and might. So, the, for example, the pillars of fire, that could be speaking in the same sense of what he says about Jesus. And so John is using a similar term to describe the mightiness of this angel. Okay? Um, another point to consider would be that Jesus... And this is, again, kind of stepping back, looking at big picture. Jesus does not manifest himself following his incarnation as he did before in the Old Testament. 
So there's a term for that. But the basic idea is that before Jesus was incarnated, right, born of a virgin, from the foundation of the world, God in the beginning, to that point, it's believed, theologians point to examples where Jesus manifested himself in some way, some form. Um, Some people believe he represented as that cloud that led them out of Egypt, okay? Um, some would say that when it talks about this, the, the one who's the Lord of the angel armies, okay, in, in the Old Testament, or the man that stands before David, right, the, the impressive warrior. Some have said that's Jesus. Um, when the Hebrews are thrown in the fire, right, and Nebuchadnezzar says, how many did we throw in? And he, they say, three, and he says, but I see a fourth one walking around. Now, Nebuchadnezzar says, like the Son of God, We have to be careful there. Nebuchadnezzar was not saying Messiah. He's not a Jewish man, right? He's saying he's has the appearance of a God. Like he's, he's looks different than the other three is the idea there. Okay. Some would say those are examples of Jesus, right? Manifesting himself in some way from the moment of the incarnation, earthly ministry, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, he doesn't manifest himself in any other way than the risen Christ from that point forward. So some would say the reason we don't think this is Jesus is because he's not identified as Jesus, like he is in earlier chapters with like chapter five, for example, when they call who can open the lamb or the book and the lamb of God comes up from the throne and so on and so forth. There's distinctions made there identifying him separate from the angels. Okay. So again, Some say these descriptions clearly speak to Jesus. Well, but Jesus doesn't manifest himself as an angel in the New Testament after his incarnation. Those are kind of the two views. Um, So Jesus is also not seen as an angel. He's never described as an angel in the book of Revelation. How is he described? A lamb that was slain, right? How else is Jesus described in the book of Revelation? He's the lamb and the... The lion, the lion of what? Judah, right? So there's the meekness of the lamb that was slain. And what does the lion of Judah represent? What? Strength. Kingship, right? His authority. He's going to rule and reign. Again, never called an angel though, okay? Um, We must also note a key word that John uses in the text, okay? So if you read verse 1, There's a word he uses, and this is, again, where people on one side might make their case. And I saw another mighty angel. So that word, another, we have to pause there and say, wait a minute. What does John mean by another? Well, another in this text means of the same kind. So there's another that's not of the same kind, and there's another that's of the same kind. This is another of the same kind. So what is an another angel that we've seen John speak about in this book so far. Well, Revelation 5, verses 1 and 2, he says this, I saw a strong angel proclaiming. Strong angel, mighty angel. So when John says, I saw another mighty angel, many will say, okay, he's saying just like the one in chapter 5. It's another like that. Mighty, unique from the other angels, right? There's something about this angel that's different than the other ones that he's seen, maybe, or other things he's seen as far as angelic beings. Um, Again, there are great theologians who say this is obviously a manifestation of Christ. 
could have some bearing on people who want to equate Jesus to an angel. And in doing so, bring him not as a divine part of the Trinity, but make him just an angel like Gabriel or Michael. So that would be where, if you're talking to somebody and they use those terms, they may use this as an example of, well, see, this is Jesus. For that reason, some theologians say, no, we're going to say this is an angel and not Jesus. Um, To me, just me reading this, my personal opinion, and you're welcome to disagree with me. I didn't even say you'd be wrong, but you can disagree with me. Um, I don't believe this is Jesus based on the other ways that John describes him. There are some similarities, but again, just the fact that his face shone like the sun, that doesn't necessarily mean the very same glory that God shows or Jesus shows. Remember, Moses' face shined. And why did Moses' face shine? Because he was in the presence of God, right? And if this is one of the archangels in the presence of God, in the glory of God, or around the glory of God, all right? So here's this idea, though. This angel stands and declares something. That's the big picture here, right? And what, is this, what does it sound like when this angel speaks? Like a lion's roar. So it's overwhelming him. It's, it's shaking, right? He says he's going to do this. And then it says in verse 3 that when he cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. So we're going to dive into that next. So verses 4 through 7. If I can get another volunteer that would read. Claudette, awesome. Thank you. So verses 4 through 7, ma'am. All right. Thank you, ma'am. So letter B in your notes. This is for John alone. Okay. What do I mean by that? Here we see in number one, the seven peals of thunder is how one commentary referred to this seven rolls of thunder. I've heard others say it that way. Uh, Whatever was heard by John, it was not to be written down. Okay. Uh, But only between him and God, and you could say him, maybe heaven, the heavenly beings and John. Um, now, this hasn't stopped many from making numerous assumptions and guesses on what could have been. Because this is what we do. The angel says, hey, John, don't write this down. This isn't for anyone. This, I just, you just need to know this. What do theologians do? Gee, I wonder what that could have been. And then they write whole sections of books and chapters on what it could have been. We do the same thing. You know the story, John chapter uh, 8. woman was caught in the act of adultery, brought before Jesus, thrown at his feet. Law says to stoner, what do you say to do? He says, you're right. Him without sin cast the first stone. What was Jesus doing when he was saying that? Writing in the sand. What was he writing? It doesn't say. But has that stopped preachers from guessing what it says? Man, I've heard many a good preacher preach on what it could be. And amens and everything. Oh, he was writing down the sins of the people in the crowd. We don't, sure, maybe. He could have been writing a grocery list. I don't know what he was writing, right? Does it matter what he was writing? What matters? 
they recognized we aren't sinless and therefore we can't pass judgment on this woman. And the other point we need to take away from this is the one who is sinless could have taken her life, chose not to. That's the main crux here. Also note, Jesus, because I know here today in some of the progressive circles, they use that example. Jesus him picking her up off the ground. I believe he had to do that. She's embarrassed. Could you even imagine being her in this moment? And I think the whole thing was a setup, by the way. But anyway, because where's the guy that she was with? It says she was caught in the act of adultery. She wasn't alone, okay? Where's the guy? Oh, that, he's off free. No one, no one brought him to Jesus. So he picks her up and he says, what? Where are your accusers? She says, well, they're gone. He says, well, I don't accuse you either. Go and sin no more. Why does he say that? Because he recognizes that is sin. Now go, grow from this and sin no more. Did she sin again after that moment? Of course. It's the same affirmation that John gives us in 1 John 2. My little children, sin not. That's what we're striving for. Then he says, but if any man sin, because he knows we all can and will fall into sin. We're striving to sin not. So here, in the same sense, we don't know what the angel or what this thunders revealed to John. It says he was going to write it, and a voice from heaven said, nope, 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 don't write it down. Which is funny because everything he's seen, what's he doing? And why is he writing it down? To prophesy it, to share it with us and so many others. So for whatever reason, nope, this is just for you. I don't know what it is, but it's exactly what John needed to hear in this moment. Right? Because God doesn't do anything by accident. So whatever it was, it was exactly what John needed to hear. Um, Again, this is also not new to God's revelation to hold things back. Uh, Many things were even done or spoken by the Lord during his ministry on earth that are not recorded for us. We see evidence of this in John uh, chapter 21, verse 25. You can jot that down. Uh, That's the passage that says, basically, if we tried to write everything down, we couldn't. There's not enough books, the idea. John 21, 25. And so again, isn't it kind of funny that the one who says in his gospel, we couldn't even write down all the things Jesus does, gets a special revelation that he can't write down. So again, I I love that. Um, Again, this is not an issue for us that we don't know certain things that God did or has done uh, because God has graciously revealed all that we need to know about himself and about his will to come into right relationship with him by the gospel. What did Jesus do from two years old in the temple to 11, 12 years old in the temple? We don't know. What did he do from 12 until 30? We don't know. People love to make up all kinds of stuff of what he did. All kinds of stories have been told about that. We don't know. And it's okay that we don't know because we don't have to know because everything we need to know, he revealed to us. Have you ever sat back and thought about the will of God and some of the things that God has allowed and God has done or God has done differently than you and I would do it? By the way, he's always done it better, no matter what you think, right? God, if you were me, if I was you, I would do it this way. That would be an utter failure. That would be a horrible idea. But we don't need to stress about those things. Why? Because the will of God that we need to know has been revealed and the will of God that's not meant for us, we don't need to worry about because that's for him to worry about. He's working those things out. So then it goes on, and he does make a declaration. This angel does make a declaration. First, he makes an oath. So verse 6 is him. It says, and swear by him. So he's making an oath to the Godhead, 
right, to God, whoever it is that lives forever and ever, there's only one that could qualify for that. The one who created heaven and the things that there are in. And again, some people would point to this oath that this angel is taking as Jesus. Why would Jesus be making an oath to himself like this? So again, some people would say, well, that's Jesus that's declaring something. If you believe it's Jesus, if it's an angel, he's making an oath before God, saying, I'm in subjection to this God. But he makes this great oath. And then he says in verse 7, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall be, begin to sound, the mystery of God shall be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. So now started regarding the judgment and restoration of all things. So there is coming a time when God will finish what he started regarding the judgment and restoration of all things. Now, uh, the phrase at the beginning of verse 7 is best rendered, uh, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded. So basically, in those last days, as that's happened, there's going to be this trumpet. It's going to sound. It's going to kind of proclaim the beginning of the end. This is going to wrap up this time of judgment and restoration. The end would not come before the trumpet sounded, but in association with it. For John and his prophecy, the time is short. That's the idea. The angel saying, this time is coming up quickly in the process of revealing all of this. He's saying this is going to end quickly in the sense of this vision. As short as it takes place, again, in the middle or into the last couple parts of that three-year tribulation at the end. So the idea is here, the angel saying, it's time is running out. Time is short. So let's make this clear. All right? Letter C. Last part of this amazing little chapter. So letter C, uh, Revelation 10, 8 through 11. One more volunteer that would like to read. Who would like to read that for us? 8 through 11. Okay, Chrissy, thank you. Thank you, ma'am. All right, and this is why this chapter is so interesting to me, this last little part. Um, and so letter C in your notes, John consumes the little book. Now, again, let's pause. Symbolism, okay? This is a vision. So when it says the angel's got one foot on the sea and one foot on the earth, again, this is a vision, okay? This is not meant to be a, a literal angel standing foot on the sea. It's, it's all symbolic, okay? But it represents this idea of coming judgment over land and sea. We've seen some of that already, right, with some of the judgments, and more is coming. And then it talks about that he ate the book. Now, again, I don't recommend that you go home and start literally tearing pages and eating your Bible, okay? Well, the Bible says you got to eat this, so I'm going to eat it, okay? It's meant to be symbolic. So number one in your notes, uh, this little book in the hand of the angel seems different, than the book that was opened in Revelation chapter 5. And again, like everything else in Revelation, although there are those that believe it is a seven, the seven-sealed book. So most that I came across believe it's another scroll of some kind. Others believe 
it's the same seven seals book that was in Revelation 5. Um, the reason I think it's a different book is because it's described differently. It's a little scroll. No one had to break seals on it. It doesn't even talk about the seals, okay? And it's in different position, all right? So that's why I think it's a different book. Regardless, the point is what he does with it. And I think that's where we draw our conclusion and our application. Um, ultimately, this is a symbolic illustration of consuming the words of God. That's the idea here. Um, I love what Warren Worsby says in his commentary on this. He says, It was not enough for John to see the book or even know its contents and purpose. He had to receive it into his inner being. That's kind of the idea here. So it's not enough that he just saw the book, understood the book's contents, the purpose of the writing. The idea is he has to receive this into his innermost being. Now, in your notes, I believe you have a little listing there. Um, things that are food items, all right? So the first one there is bread. So the word of God is called bread, right? Jesus quotes that verse. Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word, right? We consume it. It's like bread, okay? So that's Matthew 4.4. 4. Uh, it's also con- called milk, right? It's considered milk in 1 Peter 2.2. 2. And again, so many Christians get this, I think, wrong. And we'll unpack it in just a second, this idea of milk and the third one, meat. Meat. So many Christians I hear talk about the milk and the meat. And they make it like, well, when you're a baby Christian and you're new to Christ, you need the milk of the word. And then as you grow, you get off milk and you move to meat. That's not what scripture teaches. Scripture teaches we still need the milk and now we add meat into the diet. So many Christians think, well, now I'm into the meaty part. And we instantly think, what's meat? What gets called the meat of scripture? Prophecy, end times, the more confusing, in-depth, confusing stuff. Well, I, I'm, I'm really getting into the meat of God's word because I'm into this passage that nobody else has ever interpreted, and I'm really diving into it. It's not necessarily what, what Paul means. What does he mean by the meat of the word? It means, man, I'm diving in and I'm consuming it in a deeper way, in a, in a fuller way, right? I'm understanding because I've grown in the spirit, and the spirit of God is revealing more to me. The word doesn't change, but my mind becomes more open to what God's word says. And this, you've experienced this. You've read a passage. You've read a passage. Years go by. You read it again. You go, oh, I never saw that before. Because at some, for some reason, whatever God's leading was, you're at a different place and a maturity in Christ. And now you're able to understand it and receive that. But nowhere does it say we get rid of the milk. And what's considered the milk of the Bible? Most people go, well, that's the gospel. So when you get saved, you drink the milk of the gospel that's coming to Christ. And then you grow off of that. You move off of that. Well, yeah, we need to move on and include more than just the basics of the gospel. Paul talks about that. That you should be teachers, but you still need people to come and teach you the elemental things. This is where you have somebody that's been saved for 20, 30, 40 years. And they still just kind of want to sit and consume. They don't want to give anything out. That's Paul's example. He's saying, no, you, should, you could be teachers of this stuff. You, you know it. And I'll never forget, I had somebody that was in their 60s. And they decided they didn't want to come to church anymore. And they were going to go to a different church and um, decided that they were just going to do that. And it was about four weeks or so. I hadn't seen them. I thought they were on vacation. So I called them. said, hey, ain't seen you in a while. How are things going? Oh, well, we're going to a different church now. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, Good luck with that. God bless you. You know, 
I said, well, is there anything, like, what's, what's going on? And they said, well, we want to go to a church that preaches the gospel every single Sunday. Now, that hit me two ways. One, I thought, I kind of thought we did. I kind of thought we preached the gospel every Sunday, but maybe I don't. Maybe I'm wrong on this. And the other thing I thought was, what do, what do they mean by that? And they literally want every single message, every single Sunday to be just Jesus died for you. You need to receive Christ. That's it. The other stuff that we were teaching and diving into, deeper topics, we don't need that. We just need the gospel. So that exists in Christianity today. It's either I want all the meat, which means give me all the confusing, deep prophecy stuff, or just give me the basic gospel and nothing else. Neither one of those are the Christian life, right? We need the gospel, and we need to be reminded of the gospel. Alistair Begg says it best. We preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. Because it reminds us of who we are in Christ and who we need to be in Christ. But we also go into the whole counsel of God's word. Isn't that what the Bible says? We preach the whole counsel of God's word. So that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so again, when we talk about this milk, the meat, and the bread, it's all needful. Okay, Think of it as a balanced diet. We need a balanced diet of God's word. Some days you might read John 3.16 and just spend the whole rest of the day praising God for the beauty of the gospel. Other days, he may take you into a passage in Hebrews and you spend the whole day just dwelling on some truths, consuming it, taking it. Whatever it is, it's about spending time in his word and consuming it, taking it into ourselves. The word is to be consumed, to be communicated. So the word of God must be consumed to be communicated. Another author put it this way in my studies, and I love this. The word must always become flesh before it can be given to those that need it. What does it mean when the word becomes flesh? Well, ultimately, it's true in Christ, right? John 1, 1, John 1, 14. But I believe also when we consume the word into our inner being and then we communicate it to those in need, it becomes flesh through what? Through us. What does the Bible says? You're a written epistle. You're a living epistle of God's word, and you're communicating that to those you come in contact with. Number two in your notes, as we got to kind of finish up here. Number two, the results paralleled the bittersweet experience of the prophets of the Old Testament. So these results that John experienced paralleled the bittersweet experience of the prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, and I believe you got the references there. Jeremiah, yep, Jeremiah 15, Ezekiel 2. We see examples of this as well. Ezekiel's, it's almost the same type of wording, uh, even in how he communicates that. Uh, again, we see the Old Testament heavily referenced in Revelation. Old Testament is very much connected to the book of Revelation. Now, why is the word, when he consumes it, why is it sweet on his lips but bitter in his stomach? Right? Why, why does it change as he's kind of dwelling on this word? One commentary said this, and I love this. The initial acceptance of God's word is sweet knowing it is communication from God. And the ultimate message is one of reconciliation and peace. Man, what a beautiful word. God loves you, and he cares for you. He died on the cross for you. You receive his gospel. You have peace with God, a connection with God. He's your father, and he'll be with you. Mankind's process of reaching that peace involves judgment, mayhem, and death. This is the bitterness of preaching a sweet gospel to the world knowing that those who reject God will face his terrible wrath. He continues, 
We must partake of the word and make it a part of our being. Further, we must not withhold any message from the, uh, from the word because it might be bitter. Even if it offends our audience, we must speak the truth in love. In other words, we are obligated and privileged to share the whole word, word with the whole world. I love that. There's things you're reading God's word. By the way, these judgments talking about, they're bitter. The only way I can say it is like, it's kind of gives you like an upset stomach. You think about what people are going to go through apart from Christ, and you're like, man, I don't, I don't like that. that. That doesn't settle with me. doesn't sit with me. But then we read about the glory of God and the peace of God and the love of God and the gospel of God, and we go, that's, that's beautiful. And so many people cut the bitter out. This is why, honestly, so many churches won't even use the word hell. Ever. They won't use the word sin. They'll love using words like mistakes, right? Errors. But they won't even say sin. They won't say, if you don't accept Christ, you're going to burn and spend eternity in hell. They'll say, you won't experience the fullness of what life can be and all that God has for you. It's just these subtle changes. Now, it's true. Outside of Christ, we won't fulfill all that God has for us. But that's not the ultimate judgment. That's a part of it, this side of heaven. But man, the ultimate judgment is eternal separation from God in hell. And why won't churches say that? Because that's bitter. And what will the audience do? They might not like it. Turning it off. They're not coming back. I'm not going back. I'm going to go down the road because you know what? They tell me some really good sounding stuff. Yes. Yep. Yeah. We even, we dove into that a little bit on Sunday night where we just started a little study through the idea of truth and that where do we find truth? Well, we find it in the person of Jesus Christ and his word. And so again, we have to give the whole word. We don't get to pick and choose what we give people. This is sometimes the problem with our church culture where we pull a verse out of its context. And we take a verse and we go, man, I like the way that sounds. And we give it to people. Uh, one example, Jeremiah 29, 11. Oh, I know the plans that I have for you to prosper you. That's sweet. Read a little more. That's written to people in judgment who are being oppressed and persecuted. And it's a promise, by the way, not to you and I. Let's keep it in its context. It's a promise to the captives that one day you'll come back. But we don't like all that. We don't like that they were being judged for their sin. And that's why God said, once this judgment's done, then I'm going to restore you. No, we just like the part about, well, he's going to prosper me. Right? Philippians chapter 4. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Oh, we like that. That's sweet. All my needs will be met in Christ. I have no wants. That means the car I want, the job I want, the house I want, the health I want, it's all good. It says. No, that's not what it means. It actually was talking to a church in the church of Philippi that gave to the ministry and the mission of Paul to such a degree that they were poor and impoverished because they gave it all to Paul's ministry. And because they gave it all away, Paul says, now you have needs. Now, by the way, Paul defines needs as food, clothing, and shelter. So you have needs now. You can't provide for those needs because you gave it all to me. Well, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. He'll take care of you, not with a, a certain car in the driveway, but he'll give you food in your stomach because you've given to the ministry. But we don't think about that. We just throw the verse on a graduation card and tell a graduate, hey, God's going to provide everything you ever need. That's not what the passage says. 
So we take the sweet verses, we leave the bitter, right? It's kind of like that food on the buffet that nobody ever touches, but they keep putting it out and you don't know why. Like nobody's eating this. It's growing something on it. It's not even edible anymore, but they keep, nobody eats this. Right? It's, that's what we do with this. We, we got to be so careful. So John says, I consumed the word and it was so good. But then it turned bitter in my stomach because he realized there would be those that reject it. And because of that, there would be judgment and wrath. So I want to close with this and then we'll go to prayer. And I think this is all in your notes. It should be this conclusion. As I was kind of reading through this chapter and studying and preparing, I honestly love that, that God gives John these pauses in his vision of coming judgment. From the heavenly scenes of worship earlier that we read to the glimpses and the, of the hope and restoration that lies ahead. I believe this is God showing his grace and compassion, understanding that John, as a man, may be and is overwhelmed by all he is seeing. But think about it. You're John. Pauses. It says, hey, John, I'm going to take a break. We're going to take a break. I want to remind you of why all of this is happening. Let me, let me show you some compassion right now because I know you're overwhelmed. That's how I read these little breaks and these little interludes. It goes on to say this in the conclusion there. So as God does with us in our lives, he breaks the intensity and reminds us of his grace, love, purpose, and plan. John will have to continue prophesying to many more people, but he was reminded and refreshed with the sweetness of God's truth. Isn't God so good to us that way? Like he calls you to something and it's just, it's ways way more than you thought. It's a burden. It's tough. You don't know if you can get through it. And then there's these little breaks where you're doing your devotion and it's just a good time of worship. Why does he show him all the heavenly worship early before the judgment? Because he's reminding him, this is what it's all about, John. It's about my glory. It's about my honor, my praise. Why does he remind him about the martyred Christians being rewarded and, and vindicated? Because he's telling him, yeah, it looks bleak, but I'm taking care of this. And so again, when you feel discouraged and you feel defeated and you feel like there's just nothing that's going to change, it's all dark, right? Pause, reflect on the word of God, consume the word of God. Don't just read it to read it, like dwell in it. Let it become a part of you. I was just reading and we're going to talk about it in a couple of weeks on, in our series. And so when you hear this in a couple of weeks, act really surprised. Okay. Just be like, wow, that was amazing. I've never heard this before. Um, I just was reading it today, actually, this morning, um, in, in a book um, by a, a Puritan author written in the 1600s. But he was talking about the power of, of personal meditation upon God's word. Now, we know when we hear meditation, the New Age thinking is the, you know, more Eastern kind of thinking of meditation. That's not what the Bible means. The Bible means just meditation is sitting and reflecting quietly over the truth of, of God's word, God's character, your relationship with him. And it talked about in that chapter about the power of just pausing and reflecting. Now, this is in the 1600s, and it actually said people are too distracted to do this. Imagine if this man was alive today, what he would think. But he says people are too busy. They're too, they're too impatient. <laughs> to pause and reflect. And when I think about what John's going through, I love these little moments where you can just pause and kind of reflect over everything and the purpose of God and the plan of God and the love of God and the grace of God. And then, yeah, he's going to keep prophesying, but he paused. And so I guess I would encourage you, are you taking those times? And again, in a couple of weeks, we'll talk about the idea of holy habits that we can develop in our lives. And this is one of them, meditating upon God, spending time, not so much asking things from God or, or just praying God do this and God do that. Don't even say anything. 
just sit before God and just dwell on the truth of his word. Let that fill your heart and mind. And, and I don't know about you, but it's something I'm going to try to do more this year because I'm, I'm not really good at this. Um, I pray I'll get better at it by his grace. But I, I hope that encourages you to think about when you go through tough times, that's what God wants us to do is to have these little breaks and interludes because he's going to give us compassion and grace in that time. All right? Well, let's do this. We're going to go ahead and, and dismiss to prayer. Um, we'll dive back into the rest of uh, chapter 11, 12, and so on next week. Um, but I wanted to just take a moment and just kind of reflect on this. And so how are you, just an application question, how are you consuming God's word? Uh, how are you consuming it, whether daily, however it is, multiple times a day? Lynn? Bible study is Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amen. I love that. Actually praying scripture, reading scripture and then spending time reflecting back on scripture. What did it reveal about God's character, attributes, and so on? That's awesome. Amen. Well, let's do this. We'll go ahead and dismiss the prayer. And so uh, I'm going to pray quickly and then men will be down. Ladies, I know you're in the nursing room down the hallway, last door on the right. Anybody that would like would like to not be a part of that, you're welcome to hang out in the lobby or in here. And I've got new prayer guides for you. So we'll make sure, guys, we got them. And then I'll make sure Lynn's got the ladies. But let's pray, and then we'll let you guys be dismissed. Father, we thank you for this evening. Lord, we thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that it would become a daily part of our spiritual diet to consume your word, to not just read it to read it, not just coast through, but to genuinely spend time allowing it to affect us at a deeper level. Thank you for the word. Thank you for the spirit that you give us in salvation that applies the word to our hearts and minds. And I pray that we would, Lord, with great anticipation, look forward to all that you're going to do as we continue to keep our eyes on you, Lord. We know that you're working your plan for your glory. Thank you for using, uh, for using us right where we are as we surrender in Christ for your glory. Father, we love you. Be with our time of prayer, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we'll let you guys be dismissed to prayer.